So there's two handouts up here. One of them is the review, and then hopefully you guys have the ones from last week. We need to finish up question 20. We should do that today. And then the other review that we have here is going to um, be the second portion of question 20. We may or may not get to that today. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, we'll, we, we, we might start it, um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, I warned you it's going to take probably close to three weeks to get through this question. But. Okay. So let's start with our review questions. Let's do, again, let's do 15, I think it was 15, 17, and 18. And then we'll jump to question 20. Okay, so question 15, what is the work of creation? The work of creation is that wherein God did in the beginning, by the word of his power, make of nothing the world and all things therein for himself within the space of six days and all very good. Question 17, how did God create man? After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground, and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls, made them after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts, and power to fulfill it, and dominion over the creatures, yet subject to the fall. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. All right, and question 20 for today. What was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created? The providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion, and ordaining marriage for his health, affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath, entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, of which the tree of life was a pledge, and forbidding to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. All right, very good. So I believe last week we left off um, starting to talk about uh, the first marriage. Uh, does, that sound, does that sound about right to everybody? I think that's where we were, okay. Um, yeah, so we looked at uh, Adam's priestly and kingly roles. And then we were about to go into the first marriage. So, marriage is what brings us together today. Sorry, I had to. I had to do it. Okay. All right. God places Adam in the garden with his beautiful bride, Eve. Or as the catechism says, the Lord ordains marriage for his help. Right. Can I get someone please to read uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25? Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Let's 
lay the foundation of some scripture. I got it. Genesis 2, 18-25? Yes, sir. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave name to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Very good. Thank you. All right, so God declares at the beginning of this passage that it's not good that Adam is alone, right? And this is, this is jarring language, right? Because this is the first time in creation, in the whole creation account, that something is not good. Because in Genesis 1.30, God makes the beast of the field, and it's good, and then we go to the very next verse, Genesis 1.31, and he says it's all very good. So in our passage, we're, we're somewhere in the middle, right? And something is not good. And what's not good? That Adam is alone. He doesn't have a helper. Right? This is not good. And, and poor Adam, right? you you gotta, you got to feel a little bit bad for him, right? God says here, Go name all the animals. Which, by the way, is another indication of his kingly role. And Adam does what's required of him, right? He goes, okay, that's a tiger. Oh, I get Oh, there's two. Okay, I get it. That's a boy tiger. That's a boy tiger. Okay, yeah. That's an elephant. And that's a, that's a boy elephant. That's a girl elephant. I have a question. You know. But, and it gets repeated, right? Because that, that gets repeated. At the end of verse 20, after Adam's finished naming the animals, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And what do we know about Hebrew literature, right? When something is repeated, it's important. So out of love, what does God do for Adam? He causes a deep sleep to fall upon him and removes one of his ribs. And out of this rib, he fashions the first woman. And God presents this woman to Adam. But this is not just any woman, is it right? Scripture says, this is the last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha. She was taken out of Ish. Okay, this is the perfect helper for Adam. At last, Adam says, she's here. Okay, this whole situation taught Adam what he needed. When no other animal or part of God's creation could help him fulfill his priestly and kingly roles, at last, Eve is here. And by the way, there is there's nothing negative about the term helper. 
Okay, ladies, and men too for that matter, I urge not to listen to the worldly and feminist voices that you hear today who discredit the godly ordained roles that we see emerging here in the earliest chapters of Genesis. Okay? First of all, this title and this role is assigned to Eve by God. Okay, already making it the most glorious and incredible thing that there could be. But secondly, God refers to himself as helper. Okay, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. If you love me, this is Jesus speaking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. So Jesus promises to send the helper. And who is the helper? It is the third person of the Trinity. I'm sorry, it's the person of the Godhead. It is the Trinity and the Holy Spirit, right? And he does the same thing in the next chapter. But when the helper comes, this is chapter 15, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. But God himself is not ashamed of this title, why should any woman who bears his image? And Jesus says it again in chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's chapter 16, verse 7. While Jesus was still here, he could only be in one place at a time. Right? It's not until Jesus ascends to heaven that the Spirit of God, the Helper, can come in new covenant power to carry on Jesus' covenant of grace and ministry over the entire world. To be the Helper, it is a noble title. But even now, in our Genesis 2 passage, God is outlining the roles of men and women. And the duties that they share. And I, I wish we had more time to discuss this and unpack this, but I'll, I'll mention this briefly just to kind of wet your appetite a little bit. And I'm sure most of you have heard this or, or know this probably better than I do to some extent. But when it comes to the roles of men and women as prescribed in Scripture, there are two predominant views out there, right? The first one is called egalitarianism. And, and this is just a, a definition from a, a theological website that I picked up out there, but I, I, I think this summarizes it pretty well. Egalitarianism is the theological view that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and society. I think that pretty well encompasses what egalitarians believe. And these views are usually based on certain understandings of passages like Galatians 3.28. Okay? And that says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay? They'll also pull from passages like Ephesians 5.21, which says, submitting to one another outside of reverence for Christ. Unfortunately, both of these passages are taken out of context, 
They misunderstood. Okay? In the Galatians passage, Paul is talking about justification. Okay? He's talking about justification by faith alone, not your role in the church. Okay? Salvation is offered without respect to race, gender, economic status, whatever. It's not talking about the equality of roles between men and women. Okay? In the Ephesians passage, <clears throat> that is a transition statement between two really large passages. Okay? And it's explained by Paul and qualified by Paul when you read the rest of the text. Um, and he explains it and he expounds on it, particularly with different roles within what God has ordained. Right? He talks about wives submitting to husbands. He talks about children submitting to parents. Bond servants to masters, right? A lot of different relations. Submitting to one another in that particular text means submitting according to the authority that has been established by God. Okay. Now the second view, the right one, is called complementarianism. Complementarianism. Um, this view has also been abused and misunderstood by some, but in its proper context, in its proper context, it is the, I would argue, most biblical. Again, I pulled this definition offline. I think it summarizes it well. Complementarianism holds the theological view that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other through different roles in life and the church. And of course, I would say that extends to home and society as well. And proof text for this would include things like 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, Titus 1, 6 through 9, uh, Titus 2, our passage this morning. I could go on and on. There's, there's a lot of different texts that support this. Um, but let me, let me bring us back to our Genesis 2 passage this morning. A difference in role does not... Uh, equate to a difference in quality, importance, or value. Okay, a difference in role does not equate to a difference in quality, importance, or value. When a wife submits to her husband, this should not offend us. This should not offend us. Are we equally offended when the son submits to the father? This holy submission does not imply inferiority. Both persons are equally God. But they differ in their role within the Godhead. So too do men and women in God's created order. And because this relationship is God-ordained, because it's so beautiful, it emulates the relationship within the Trinity. The relationship with Christ and his church. This relationship is unlike any other in the world. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The first marriage. She is now, as verse 25 says, his wife. <clears throat> and we need to understand a couple of of things about this marriage ceremony. <clears throat> right? This this phrase, 
This is that last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh declares that marriage is the closest of all human relationships. The closest of all human relationships. Men, women, you love your spouse more than anyone else in the world. Even your kids. When you fight, do you run to your parents and tell them what happened? You are one flesh with one person and no one else. Now, this doesn't mean you can't love your kids or be close to your parents. Of course you can't. But the relationship we have with our wives and our husbands supersedes the obligations we have to everyone else. We hold fast to the covenant faithfulness that we have entered into with our spouses. Because that's what marriage is. It's a covenant between you and your spouse before God. There's a second thing that we need to know about this this marriage ceremony. God only made one Eve for Adam. Contrary to popular opinion, right? Not multiple Eves. This shows us that God ordained marriage is always designed to be heterosexual and monogamous. Period. We'll stop. Okay. Oh yeah, well what about all the polygamy that we read about in the Bible? Yeah, what do you got to say about that? Huh? Just because it occurred in history doesn't mean God approved it. Okay? Some of the godliest people in Scripture commit some of the most heinous sin. Okay? That doesn't mean we need to repeat the sin. Okay? When questioned on this very subject of marriage, Jesus said in Matthew 19, this is verses 4 through 6, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus just confirms everything we just talked about. He basically says, have you not read your Bibles? Right? How can you not know? It's right there. But now, at last, the act of creation is complete and it's all very good. Adam and Eve have now been afforded full communion with God, as our, our catechism states, right? They can now begin to work and keep the temple garden in their priestly and kingly roles. So we move into the seventh day where God rested and instituted the Sabbath. So let's turn our attention there. Can someone please read Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3? Thank you. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done creation. Thank you. All right. A couple things to talk about here. The first of which is God resting on the seventh day. I think most of us understand at this point in our walk of Christ, it doesn't mean that God was tired, right? But sometimes we forget what it actually means. And it's very important. After all, it's repeated twice in two verses, right? Four things 
four things that we need to talk about here. God shows us in his rest. It is a day of royal rest. Again, it's not God being tired. <clears throat> Although we can use that for our Sabbath rest, for our purpose. Rather, it's the idea of cosmic temple building. Okay? Cosmic temple building. Let's flesh that out a little bit. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, we read there, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? And the answer is the, the, the whole earth. Right? The whole earth. God's place of rest is to be expanded throughout all of creation. Right? For God is the one who lays the foundations with heaven and his, his, his throne and earth as his footstool. Right? We kind of touched on that a little bit earlier, right? Where Adam was supposed to expand the garden and make all of earth God's dwelling place. And we, we see this similar language in Psalm 104. It's filled with architectural imagery. And creation is God's palace. Secondly, it's a holy day. It's a holy day. And this is the first time in creation that we see this. Right? God blesses this day and makes it holy. This day is different from all other six. It's a very it's very special in a way that the others are not. The seventh day is the crown jewel of creation. You see that the climactic act of creation, that's the creation of man. The climactic act of creation is making man. The climactic moment of creation is right now. The seventh day. The holy day. The very created world is designed to remind us of worship. When it's time to worship, the, the, the very created world tells us where worship fits in in the order of things. Third thing, it's an eternal day. It's an eternal day. At the end of every creation account, we read, and there was evening and there was morning to mark the end of the day. That doesn't happen here. Why? Because every day was designed to point forward to that eternal Sabbath rest, a day which had no end. Adam and Eve failed. But Christ comes as the second Adam and rises from the dead to inaugurate the eternal Sabbath rest. He sits at the right hand of God and enters into a rest originally appointed for Adam. And through Christ, we can enter into that same rest. Fourth, it gives us the promise of rest. It gives us the promise of rest. What we do in worship every Lord's Day is a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath rest and worship that we will experience in heaven. It's our, our true seventh day of rest. Because we find our rest in Jesus Christ. In, in, in Revelation 21 and, and 22, we read of the, the long-awaited new heavens and the new earth. right? Where the, where the dragon is destroyed and the, and the false worship that he and his followers have have uh, put in place, it's thrown down. But the most significant thing is that Christ reigns 
and God himself for his people as he was in the garden put in place. It's the restoration of worship, the eternal Sabbath rest. Remember, in the original creation account, the whole earth is designed to be God's temple. The fall destroyed that. But John tells us in Revelation 21, verse 22, that there's no need for a temple. Why? Because it's God himself. It's Jesus. And when he comes again in glory, he will accomplish that task. Listen to the, the promise of rest in Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. What sin interrupted in the garden, God dwelling with his people, has here finally been restored. God will dwell or tabernacle with us in his full glory. As it was always meant to be. All the earth will be a divine sanctuary. And I don't know about you, but I can't help find a lot of comfort in that. You know, we, we've all heard it before, but the created world, our, our Sabbath worship, the work of Christ, it all reminds us of that, that great truth that we're just, just pilgrims. Right? What we experience now only pales in comparison to the paradise that awaits us. Keep your eyes fixed on that, Christian. Wow. We get all that just from God resting. Who knew? I thought he was just tired. Okay. Let's take a look at one last thing from our two verses in Genesis 2. Um, I'm sure it's pretty obvious by now, but it needs to be said. The creation account is a pattern for work and worship. It's a pattern for work and worship. Uh, and I'm speaking, of course, of all seven days. Uh, Pastor Miller mentioned a couple weeks ago that there are several different views regarding how to interpret the creation account. We're, uh, we're not going to go all of them right now. Uh, I'll lay my cards on the table, tell you right now, I'm a six-calendar-day creationist. But regardless of the view that you hold, I venture to say pretty much all of the views would agree on this point, that the creation accounts, regardless of how you understand the timeline, Patterns for God's people, their work and worship after the Lord. We do our work for six days, including Saturday, and worship on the seventh day, Sunday, the Lord's Day, right? And for many of us, that looks like a Monday through Friday job with household chores sprinkled in, right? For our wonderful homemakers, right? It looks like a job that you never clock out of. Um, but on Sunday, the Lord's Day, right, all work stops. And this isn't a day that we get caught up on household chores, schoolwork, other stuff, right? Office work. This is this is the day of worship, right? Now, I, I don't want to dive into the specifics of the, the Lord's Day here. We'll, we'll save that for the fourth commandment. But the, the main idea that I want us to, to take away from this is the pattern that God drew for us in the creation account. And, of course, there, there are exceptions to this. Right, that the work is permitted out of necessity and, and mercy, 
Right, we get that from Matthew 12, where, where Jesus gives the example of the, the sheep falling into the pit. But um, that's the exception, right? These are generally exceptions, not the norm. We are creatures of worship. And as Christians, we need to be in fellowship together, worshiping our triune God on the day that he appointed. Okay, so that's kind of that big first section. Does anybody have any questions on that before we jump into our next half of the question? All right. At last, we're able to move into the next big section of our catechism, focusing on the covenant side of things. Our answer says that the providence of God toward man in creation is displayed by entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Now, what I want to do here is make a case for the covenant of works. Okay, because there are there are some fine Reformed scholars, men like uh, John Murray, who would who would disagree on this, that uh, that the idea of a covenant is not really present here. Okay, so I think it's important as as covenant-minded saints um, that we see what's happening here in this moment in redemptive history. Okay, uh, in order to do that, I want us to have a good understanding of, of covenant. Okay, how do we define covenant? What does it mean for God to be in covenant with His people? Okay, so let's do we have no we should we have time. Let's define let's define covenant. Now, there's several legitimate definitions out there, and you know what I like about all of them is that each one kind of presents a different uh, aspect of the term. Uh, for example, Augustine quite simply said that uh, a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons, right? This is one of the oldest definitions of covenant out there. Uh, it's, it's used in our children's catechism. Uh, I think maybe it leaves out some things you might want to say about covenant, uh, but there's nothing necessarily wrong with that definition. But I think maybe we could do a little bit better when it when it comes to specific things um, and formulating a, a, a more robust biblical definition of a term. So let's look at what, what I think is probably one of the better definitions of a covenant. Um, o. Palmer Robertson in his book, uh, Christ, uh, The Christ of the Covenants, says a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. Okay. Let's, let's flesh that out a little bit. Uh, three things I want to say about this definition. It's a bond. Okay, what does he mean? What does Robertson mean by that? Uh, he means it's an oath-bound covenant. An oath-bound covenant. Turn with me to Joshua 9. Joshua 9. <clears throat> this is the story of the Gibeonites. Great story. And for those, those who don't know, right, just the, the Gibeonites tricked Joshua and his army into entering into a, a covenant with them, right, in order to, to spare their lives, right? Joshua is, is conquering uh, the land as, as God had, had told him to do, and the Gibeonites hear that he's, he's knocking them out. He's taking over people, and uh, Israel's defeating everybody, so they decide to, to put on some raggedy old clothes, and to tell tell Joshua, hey, hey, we're not from around here, right? Can you please just let us live? And 
please, please don't kill us. Okay? So someone on that note, please read Joshua chapter 9, verses 15 through 21. covenant with them, right? And then even after they find out who they are, they spare the Gibeonites. Why? Because they entered into that covenant, an oath-bound commitment. An oath is a constituent part of a covenant. Because what happens 400 years later? There's a famine in the land, right? And David he inquires of God. He asks, he asks God. He says, "Lord, I've been I've been faithful, and I'm 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 trying to follow you. I'm trying to keep your word. Why is there a famine?" And God says, "Because Saul tried to kill the Gibeonites. Everyone forgets about that bond. God didn't. A covenant is an oath-bound commitment." No matter how long ago you made it. And do you, do you see, by the way, how this directly relates to your assurance of salvation? God has given you his word. And he has bound it with an oath. His oath. And he cannot break that promise. Or any promise, for that matter. Secondly, it's a bond in blood. It's a bond in blood. It's a life and death commitment. Turn with me back to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 15. I absolutely love this. This is fantastic. So in Genesis 15, uh, in verse 1 here, God tells Abraham, I'm your shield and your great reward. Right? Look to the heavens and number the stars, so shall your offspring be. Right? And Abraham says, well, how do I, how do I know that? Right? How, how do I know that I'll have a son? And God's response is to make a covenant, to cut in half several animals. Now, let me say this. Right away, anyone from the ancient Near East who's reading this would have known that this was a covenant-making ceremony. Okay? And it's interesting because when you read it in Hebrew, it doesn't say God makes a covenant with Abraham. Rather, he cuts a covenant. Okay? Literally, to cut. Okay? You see, covenant-making ceremonies are not unique. To Israel, what is unique to Israel is that there is no other ancient Near East religion in which the God of that culture enters into a covenant with His people. Not one. You see, when someone 
from the ancient Near East would read this, they would immediately start to assign roles to the people in the parties here of what's going on. You had the Caesarean and the, and the vassal, right? The Caesarean was the ruler or the overlord, and then the vassal was the subject or the conquered people, right? Now, for those of you who don't know anything about this, right, there's some debate among scholars as to whether or not this model is imposed upon biblical covenants. Uh, men like Dr. Ligon Duncan, right, who knows more about covenant theology than I ever will, um, he teaches this. Um, there's not, and he will say, there's not a perfect one to one correlation um, on this for sure, but it goes something like this, right? The Caesarian would conquer the people and say, I will enter into a covenant with you, and here are the terms. You pay me taxes, you pay me tribute, men for my army, right? And then I will give you security, government, and a successful, successful economy. And should you violate the end of our agreement or the covenant, then I will slaughter you just like we have slaughtered these animals. Pretty straightforward. Any questions? And of course, the vassal didn't have any choice in the matter. Now, what people in the ancient Near East would have assumed is that Abraham was going to walk in between these two, in between these animals, and make the covenant with God. That's not actually what happens here. Look back down at the text, right? In verses 9 through 10, Abraham gets the animals and cuts them, and he starts to wait for the Lord. In fact, he's waiting so long that the, buzzer, the buzzers start circling overhead in verse 11, right? And Abraham has to chase them off. And then what happens? Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then God goes on to tell him how his offspring will be slaves in Egypt, but he will deliver them. But then look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torches passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great Euphrates, the river Euphrates, and so on. Right? The symbolism of the animals is a blood oath of, of self-malediction, right? Of, of, of calling a curse upon yourself. But it's not Abraham who walks through the animals. It's God. That's what the, the smoking fire pot and the, the flaming torch is. It's, it's symbolic of God's presence. God says, I call curses down on myself if I don't keep this covenant with you. That's how you can be sure, Abraham. No ancient Near Eastern Caesarian or overlord would have done that. But are we truly confident that we can say this, see the same patterns and symbols in the Bible? Well, yes, in fact, it exists a thousand years later in Israel's history. Uh, history. Turn with me to Jeremiah 34. Let's tee up what's, what's going on during this time. The Babylonians are surrounding Jerusalem, right? And the wicked people decide, well, man, maybe we need to do something different and, and, and get right with God, right? So they assess their situation and they realize, hey, we need to free the Hebrew slaves. Um, we have been breaking God's law in that way, in a very bad way. So, so they do it. And they free the slaves and the Babylonians go away. And they think, 
hey, that worked pretty good. So the religious and the civil leaders renew their covenant with God. They undergo the whole covenant-making ceremony, the covenant of animals. After a while, though, they realize, hmm, life's kind of hard without slaves. So they take them back. And then what happens? Can someone please read Jeremiah 34, verses 17 through 19? Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. Declares the Lord, I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgress my covenant and did not keep the terms of my covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the path that they cut in two and cast between the parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the house. Thank you. So God is saying, because you violated my covenant, because you took those slaves back, you remember, you remember those animals that you cut, that you walked through? I'm going to make you like those animals. I'm going to slaughter you like I slaughtered those animals. And the birds of the air are going to feast on your carcasses violating the covenant. A covenant is a life and death commitment. It's a bond in blood. It involves an oath of self-malediction, a self-curse. And lastly, it's sovereignly administered, according to O'Pomeroff's definition. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll go through this quick. It's, it's, yeah, I'll pretty quick. So, uh, just a couple of things to say here. In any covenant between God and man that you will study, in the Bible, you will find these things to be true. God is the one who initiates the covenant. God is the one who initiates the covenant. Man neither has the ability nor authority to enter into a covenant uh, with the one true and holy God. He is the one who sets the terms of the conditions. Um, you know, God tells Abraham, leave your country. Follow me. Leave your, your kin, your kindred. Uh, leave all your idolatry. Come with me. Right? And he does. Um, and then Lastly, there's, there's no bargaining with God once he sets those terms. Right? When Moses comes down from Sinai, the, the people can't say, hmm, okay, I'll take commandments 2, 4, 6, and 7, but uh, you can keep the rest. Right? That's not how it works. Right? Um, uh, now, as I mentioned before, there are a lot of other excellent definitions out there that help us grasp uh, the biblical terms of covenant. Um, there are several, I think, that I listed on the handout. We will save those for next week. Uh, I do want to go through them briefly because I think they're very helpful in helping us fully understand covenant. Uh, but we will stop there for now. Does anybody have any questions of what we've covered this morning or so far?